Chapter Two, Part Three of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years of President Cleveland, Part Three. President Cleveland's first message to Congress, Note Twenty, Page Eighty was a long and carefully written document which was received with general approval both in this country and abroad note twenty one page eighty the recommendations which attracted most attention had to do with one the development of the navy which in its existing condition mr cleveland characterized as merely a shabby ornament to the government two a reform of the land laws which should prevent immense tracts of territory from being acquired by single individuals or great corporations three a reduction of tariff duties upon the imported necessaries of life and four an extension of the reform of the civil service in making this last recommendation however there were a few lines intended as a rebuke to some of the president's overzealous critics he wrote civil service reform does not require that those who in subordinate positions should fail in yielding their best service or who are incompetent should be retained simply because they are in place the whining of a clerk discharged for indolence or incompetency who though he gained his place by the worst possible operations of the spoils system suddenly discovers that he is entitled to protection under the sanction of civil service reform represents an ideal no less absurd than the clamour of the applicant who claims the vacant position as his compensation for the most questionable party work but there was something else in the message which though it attracted little general attention at the time possessed in view of what happened in succeeding years an extraordinary significance more than five pages of the message were devoted to the question of silver by the so-called bland allison law enacted february twenty eighth eighteen seventy eight it had been provided that the coinage of the silver dollar of four hundred and twelve and a half grains should be resumed this dollar was made a legal tender for public and private debts and a provision directed its compulsory coinage at the rate of not less than two million dollars or more than four million dollars per month the bland allison bill was passed by a democratic house and a republican senate president hayes vetoed it and it was at once passed over his veto by heavy majorities the message which mr cleveland now sent to congress asked earnest attention to the working of this law he pointed out that silver had steadily fallen in intrinsic value that a so-called bimetallic conference with european nations for the purpose of establishing internationally a common ratio between gold and silver had failed and that if the coinage of silver should be continued under the bland allison act the hoarding of gold would presently begin the following sentences from this portion of the message are well worth recalling the desire to utilize the silver product of the country should not lead to a misuse or the perversion of this power up to the present time only about fifty million of the silver dollars so coined have actually found their way into circulation leaving more than one hundred sixty five million in the possession of the government every month two millions of gold in the public treasury are paid out for two millions or more of silver dollars to be added to the idle mass already accumulated if continued long enough this operation will result in the substitution of silver for all the gold the government owns applicable to its general purposes the nearer the period approaches when it the government will be obliged to offer silver in payment of its obligations the greater inducement there will be to hoard gold against depreciation in the value of silver or for the purpose of speculating this hoarding of gold has already begun 
when the time comes that gold has been withdrawn from circulation then will be apparent the difference between the real value of the silver dollar and a dollar in gold and the two coins will part company gold will be at a premium over silver banks which have substituted gold for the deposits of their customers may pay them with silver bought with such gold thus making a handsome profit rich speculators will sell their hoarded gold to their neighbors who need it to liquidate their foreign debts at a ruinous premium over silver and the laboring men and women of the land most defenseless of all will find that the dollar received for the wage of their toil has sadly shrunk in its purchasing power mr cleveland quoted the words uttered by daniel webster in the senate in eighteen thirty four the very man of all others who has the deepest interest in a sound currency and who suffers most by mischievous legislation in money matters is the man who earns his daily bread by his daily toil he then proceeded to recommend that the compulsory coinage of silver dollars directed by the bland act be suspended these striking sentences received but scant attention at the time far greater interest was felt in the possibility of a conflict between the democratic president and the republican senate which now elected senator john sherman to be its president pro tempore and which had a republican majority of six the house was democratic by a majority of forty-two with this division of power it was obvious that no party measures pure and simple could be enacted the field therefore was left clear for party skirmishing it was not long before the republican majority in the senate made its first move toward putting cleveland in a hole as has already been explained the president had removed or suspended a number of republican officials and had appointed democrats in their stead in so doing he had not made public his reasons for removal or suspension other than the general statement that this action was for the good of the public service the republican senators sought now to bring him to an explicit and detailed accounting whether he refused or whether he acceded to their wish they hoped to have it appear that he had removed republicans solely from partisan motives in this way his professed regard for civil service reform would be discredited his independent supporters would be estranged and the president himself would appear somewhat in the light of a hypocrite the case of mr george m duskin was selected as a suitable one upon which to make the fight mr duskin had been united states district attorney for the southern district of alabama on july seventeenth he had been suspended by executive order and mr john d burnett had been designated to perform the duties of the office in duskin's place when congress met the president nominated mr burnett for appointment as duskin's successor the senate passed a resolution requiring the attorney-general to send to it all the papers relating to mr duskin's suspension the attorney-general by order of the president informed the senate that it was not considered that the public interests would be promoted by so transmitting these papers and other documents thereupon the judiciary committee of the senate passed a resolution censuring the attorney-general and by inference the president it was evidently intended to make a formal demand upon the president himself for these papers senators of the united states have an exalted opinion of their own dignity they are fond of calling the chamber to which they belong the most august deliberative body in the world they claimed moreover in eighteen eighty six that inasmuch as the assent of the senate was required to confirm the appointment of certain officers these officers were not subject to removal by the president without the senate's permission this claim was based upon the so-called tenure of office act passed in eighteen sixty seven during the conflict between congress and president johnson 
to be sure the more stringent features of the act had been stricken out in eighteen sixty nine when general grant assumed the presidency nevertheless the senate felt that between its own overpowering greatness and its somewhat tenuous legal right it could overawe a new and inexperienced president mr cleveland however did not wait for the issue to be fully joined between the executive and the senate like a good general he attacked boldly before his opponents had fully matured their plans on march first eighteen eighty six he sent a message to the senate in which he took high ground it is by no means conceded wrote he that the senate has the right in any case to review the act of the executive in removing or suspending a public officer then he declared that the attorney-general had acted solely under executive direction he said that the papers relating to the duskin case were not public documents i regard the papers and documents withheld and addressed to me or intended for my use and action purely unofficial and private and having reference to the performance of a duty exclusively mine if i desired to take them into my custody i might do so with entire propriety and if i saw fit to destroy them no one could complain the requests and demands which by the score have for nearly three months been presented to the different departments of the government whatever may be their form have but one complexion they assume the right of the senate to sit in judgment upon the exercise of my exclusive discretion and executive function for which i am solely responsible to the people from whom i have so lately received the sacred trust of office my oath to support and defend the constitution my duty to the people who have chosen me to execute the powers of their great office and not to relinquish them and my duty to the chief magistracy which i must preserve unimpaired in all its dignity and vigour compel me to refuse compliance with these demands the message ended with the following haughty sentence neither the discontent of party friends nor the allurements constantly offered of confirmations of appointees conditioned upon the avowal that suspensions have been made on party grounds alone nor the threat proposed in the resolutions now before the senate that no confirmations will be made unless the demands of that body be complied with are sufficient to discourage or deter me from following in the way which i am convinced leads to better government for the people the boldness and vigor with which the president thus asserted his prerogative astounded the republican senators they found themselves in the very hole into which they had gleefully expected to put mr cleveland just what to do they did not know they had no means of coercing the president of the united states and his calm indifference to the senatorial dignity was as unpleasant as it was novel in their experience they argued and debated but finally in a sheepish shamefaced way they came to the conclusion that nothing whatsoever could be done but swallow the medicine which the president had administered note twenty two page eighty six one of their number however took an oratorical revenge this was senator ingalls of kansas mr ingalls was a very brilliant fluent speaker possessing a voluminous vocabulary of bitterness a tall thin cynical-looking man with a power of emitting words which scorched like drops of vitriol he never failed to command the attention of his colleagues and of the public he let it be known that he was about to scarify the administration with regard to its pretensions to reform when he arose in his place on march twenty eighth both the floor of the senate and the galleries were crowded speaking slowly in order that every shaft might surely find its mark he delivered an address which was a masterpiece of studied malice first of all he spoke of the attitude of his own party they believe and i believe that for the past quarter of a century upon every vital issue before the american people 
secession slavery coercion the public credit honest elections universal freedom and the protection of american labor they have always been right and that their opponents have always been wrong and while they concede unreservedly patriotism and sincerity to their adversaries temporary repulse has not convinced them that they were in error there is neither defection nor dismay in their columns they are ready they are impatient to renew the battle animated by such impulses it is not singular that they should feel that no republican can hold an appoint of office under a democratic administration without either sacrificing his convictions or forfeiting his self-respect accordingly sir when a little more than a year ago a democratic administration was inaugurated those who were in public station began with one consent to make excuse to retire to private life they did not stand upon the order of their going they trampled upon each other in a tumultuous and somewhat indecent haste to get out of office there was no craven cry for mercy no mercenary camp follower fled for shelter to the bomb-proofs of the tenure of office act no sutler crawled behind the fragile breastworks of civil service reform for protection they lost their baggage but they retained their colors their arms their ammunition and their camp equipage and marched off the field with the honors of war if at the expiration of one year a few yet remain in office rarinantes and gorgeti vasto it is because the victors have been unable to agree among themselves or been unable to discover among their own number competent and qualified successors speaking of the president he said sir i am not disposed to impugn the good faith the patriotism the sincerity the many unusual traits and faculties of the president of the united states he is the sphinx of american politics it is said that he is a fatalist that he regards himself as the child of fate the man of destiny and that he places devout and implicit reliance upon the guiding influence of his star certainly whether he be a very great man or a very small man he is a very extraordinary man his career forbids any other conclusion then he paid his respects to the advocates of reform in his sentences were concentrated the hatred and contempt which the vindictive partisan feels for all who exercise an independent judgment in politics mr president the neuter gender is not popular either in nature or society male and female created he them but there is a third sex if sex that can be called which sex has none resulting sometimes from a cruel caprice of nature at others from accident or malevolent design possessing the vices of both and the virtues of neither effeminate without being masculine or feminine unable either to beget or to bear possessing neither fecundity nor virility endowed with the contempt of men and the derision of women and doomed to sterility isolation and extinction but they have two recognized functions they sing falsetto and they are usually selected as the guardians of the seraglios of oriental despots geology teaches us that in the process of being upward from the protoplasmic cell through one form of existence to another there are intermediary and connecting stages in which the creature bears some resemblance to the state from which it has emerged and some to the state to which he is proceeding history is stratified politics every stratum is fossiliferous 
and i am inclined to think that the political geologist of the future in his antiquarian researches between the triassic series of eighteen eighty and the cretaceous series of eighteen eighty eight as he inspects the jurassic democratic strata of eighteen eighty four will find some curious illustrations of the doctrine of political evolution in the transition from the fish to the bird there is an anomalous animal long since extinct named by the geologist the pterodactyl or winged reptile a lizard with feathers upon its paws and plumes upon its tail a political system which illustrates in its practical operations the appointment by the same administration of eugene higgins and dorman b eaton can properly be regarded as in the transition epoch and characterized as the pterodactyl of politics it is like that animal equally adapted to waddling and dabbling in the slime and mud of partisan politics and soaring aloft with discordant cries into the glittering and opalescent empyrean of civil service reform note twenty three page eighty nine a sufficient answer to the gibes of mr ingles was given a few days later by the organization of the new civil service commission which aided by the president in every way now entered upon its work a definite plan for promotion was perfected rigorous investigations were conducted and these unearthed many violations of the law a republican was appointed chief examiner the bitter discussion in the senate had served to rivet public attention upon this important question and sentiment in favor of the reform was strengthened and extended every day much feeling was excited in the spring of eighteen eighty six by the president's attitude toward private pension bills that the military pension system had been grossly abused was perfectly well known to every one neither party however possessed the courage to eradicate these abuses the republicans had always officially posed as the friends of the veteran the democrats knew that if they took unfavorable action upon pension bills they would be accused of disloyalty and of hatred to the soldiers of the union the result was that disbursements for pensions had increased with startling rapidity thus in eighteen sixty six the number of pensioners was one hundred twenty six thousand seven hundred twenty two and the amount paid to them annually was fifteen million four hundred fifty thousand five hundred and fifty dollars in eighteen seventy five there were two hundred thirty four thousand eight hundred twenty one pensioners receiving annually twenty nine million two hundred seventy thousand four hundred seven dollars at that time general garfield declared in the house of representatives that the expenditures for pensions had reached their maximum and thereafter might be expected to decrease congress however passed a so-called arrears of pension act giving to each pensioner back pay from the time when his disability had been first incurred at once the expenditures were almost doubled in eighteen eighty five the pensioners numbered three hundred forty five thousand one hundred twenty five and the annual sum paid them was sixty five million one hundred seventy one thousand nine hundred thirty seven dollars the pension bureau was administered in a spirit of extravagant liberality pensions were granted to individuals whose claims were ludicrous and at times outrageous men who had been dishonorably discharged were on the pension list others who had met with injuries from accidents while drunk were likewise favored pensions had actually been bestowed upon malingerers who had shot off their own fingers in order to escape from service in the army yet even the pension bureau had felt that somewhere it must draw the line and therefore many applications were rejected unsuccessful claimants therefore got into the habit of embodying their claims in private bills which were sent to congress for special action 
these bills were hastily rushed through both houses without the slightest reference to their merits it is recorded that on a single day the senate once passed five hundred private pension bills at a sitting president cleveland made up his mind that this sort of thing must stop he began to make a careful study of each private pension bill that came before him going into all the evidence with the scrupulous care of a trained lawyer it became at once apparent that many claimants for pensions were no better than swindlers and therefore on may eighth he sent to congress the first of a series of veto messages a series which was continued throughout that session these messages were brief pungent and often tinged with sarcasm and when collected they made very interesting reading as throwing light upon the fraudulent character of many pension claims we are dealing wrote mr cleveland with pensions not with gratuities and even had it been a question of gratuities there was little reason for favourable action upon many of the bills some of the claimants were shown to have deserted from the army one had fallen while getting over a fence but had absolutely no trace of any injury upon his person another asked for a pension because he had hurt his ankle while intending to enlist another based his application upon the fact that sixteen years after the conclusion of the war he had fallen from a ladder and fractured his skull still another had broken his leg in a ditch while gathering dandelions long after the war a widow asked for a pension because her husband had died of heart disease in eighteen eighty one a circumstance which she ascribed to a wound in the ankle received in eighteen sixty three absurd as were these and many other claims the fact that the president rejected them was made the basis of a charge of hostility to the veterans of the civil war the merits of each case had little weight with those opponents who cared nothing for the truth but who sought to bring discredit on the president as a matter of fact many of his vetoes were in the interests of the very persons whose claims he set aside in several instances widows of soldiers had carelessly sought relief through a pension bill when the granting of such relief would have cut them off from a far more liberal treatment through the regular channels of the pension bureau note twenty four page ninety two the president therefore by his vigilance not only detected and exposed dishonesty but he performed a real service to many worthy persons in all he vetoed one pension bill in every seven or about one hundred in the aggregate and only one of these bills was ever passed over the president's veto early in eighteen eighty six the rumor went abroad that mr cleveland was about to end his bachelorhood this rumor naturally excited widespread interest and caused a temporary cessation of party strife only one president had ever been married during his term of office and never had the wedding of a president taken place in the white house note twenty five page ninety two before long it became known that the report was true and that an engagement existed between mr cleveland and miss frances folsom the daughter of his former law partner at the time when the engagement was announced miss folsom was in europe but she presently returned and became the object of an immense amount of friendly curiosity mr cleveland had been her guardian after her father's death and it was said that the two had begun to take a sentimental interest in one another after certain gossips had spread a premature and quite unfounded story of their betrothal miss folsom at this time was twenty-two years of age she was a tall and graceful girl with manners that were at once dignified and winning her cordiality was sincere and she was always tactful and from the day when she first became known to the american people she remained deservedly a universal favorite following the usage which prevails with rulers of nations the president was married in his official residence rather than at the house of his bride 
the wedding took place in the evening of the second of june in the blue room in the presence of a small but distinguished company including most of the members of the cabinet the ceremony was carried out with perfect taste and the only incidents which suggested an official wedding were the presidential salute of twenty-one guns fired from the arsenal and a message of congratulation from the queen of great britain which was received just as the president and his bride were taking their departure they went by special train to a cottage which had been placed at their disposal at deer park in the mountains of maryland public interest in the marriage was so great that the press of the country went far beyond the limits of what was permissible on the following morning the president was astonished to find that a pavilion had been reared directly opposite his cottage and that a throng of newspaper correspondents were collected there provided with field-glasses so as not to lose even the slightest detail which a bold-eyed curiosity could discover this annoying espionage continued for several days and fully justified some biting sentences which were written with regard to the editors who permitted such a breach of elemental courtesy they have used the enormous power of the modern newspaper to perpetrate and disseminate a colossal impertinence and have done it not as professional gossips and tattlers but as the guides and instructors of the public in conduct and morals and they have done it not to a private citizen but to the president of the united states thereby lifting their offence into the gaze of the whole world and doing their utmost to make american journalism contemptible in the estimation of people of good breeding everywhere note twenty six page ninety four congress adjourned on august fifth eighteen eighty six it had of necessity enacted no measure regarding which there was a difference of opinion between the two parties a tariff bill had been prepared by the democrats of the house but no action had been taken upon it on the other hand the question of the presidential succession had at last been definitely settled by a law which named the vice-president and the secretaries of the departments in the order of their establishment to succeed in the event of the disability or death of those preceding them another bill providing for an increase of the navy passed both houses and received the signature of the president this naval appropriation act was long afterwards pronounced historic by a republican secretary of the navy note twenty seven page ninety four it authorized the building of a battleship the texas an armored cruiser the maine a protected cruiser the baltimore a dynamite cruiser the vesuvius and a torpedo boat the cushing in this way new and wholly modern types of warships were introduced into the american navy and of these vessels every one was destined to be remembered in the nation's history president cleveland had by this time become thoroughly well known to all his countrymen in some ways he had disappointed a section of his party he had not altogether satisfied the expectations of the independent voters but he had made no serious mistakes and he had given to his followers a positive and definite policy to take the place of a purely negative critical attitude which for twenty years had brought them nothing but disaster both as a man and as a statesman his fame had grown few doubted his sincerity of purpose his integrity of character or his indomitable courage in november eighteen eighty six harvard university celebrated the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary of its foundation president cleveland accepted an invitation to attend the ceremonies as a guest of the university and of the commonwealth of massachusetts accompanied by the governor and escorted by a body of lancers he proceeded to cambridge where he was received at the sanders theatre by president elliot note twenty eight page ninety five 
no such gathering had hitherto been seen upon this continent representing as it did all that was most distinguished in american art and literature in statesmanship in science and in learning in the presence of this brilliant assemblage james russell lowell the greatest of american men of letters then living delivered an address which for its tone of rare distinction still remains a masterpiece starred with felicitous allusions and pregnant with suggestive thought toward the close he spoke a few graceful words of welcome to the guests of the university and then at the last turning to the most illustrious guest of all he said there is also one other name of which it would be indecorous not to make exception you all know that i can only mean the president of our republic his presence is a signal honour to us all and to us all i may say a personal gratification we have no politics here but the sons of harvard all belong to the party which admires courage strength of purpose and fidelity to duty and which respects wherever he may be found the justumet tenacem propositi virum who knows how to withstand the civium ardo prava jubentium he has left the helm of state to be with us here and so long as it is entrusted to his hands we are sure that should the storm come he will say with seneca's pilot o oh, neptune you may sink me if you will you may save me if you will but whatever happen i shall keep my rudder true note twenty nine page ninety six chapter two